Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Ro Khan. I'm Richard Roper. And we have the Oscars coming up this weekend. Much to discuss. It's been about seven and a half years since the last Academy Awards, <laughs> Ro Khan, or at least it feels that way. So it's nice to be in the home stretch. The Academy Awards just around the corner. It's all things Academy Awards this week on Screen Time with Rowan Rubber, brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing. It all drives your overall business success because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Get started at AmericanEagle.com today. Our Beat the Experts contest is now closed. We will choose our own winners and losers <laughs> on the Thursday podcast. So definitely download that when that comes up in two days. But one of the things that we talk about almost every year, whether it was on a radio show or a podcast we were doing, there are incredible examples of films and performances that have really aged well over time. And you can't believe that those people didn't get Oscar nominations. It's so true. You'll watch something like Some Like It Hot and someone will say, did Marilyn Monroe win the Academy Award that year? And it's like she wasn't even nominated for Some Like It Hot. There's one example. And actually, Ro, this year we saw quite a few snubs, expected nominees that didn't happen. I think a lot of us, you and I talked about The Five Bloods, the Spike Lee War right epic kind of the treasure of the Sierra Madre uh, set in Vietnam and Delroy Lindo one of our finest actors so going back some 30 years now a lot of people thought he was going to get nominated was not nominated uh, news of the world Tom Hanks gave one of the best performances in a great career didn't get nominated and you know Rudy Giuliani in uh, Borat a subsequent <laughs> movie film nothing for Rudy I mean who was Maria Bakalova playing opposite right. well I mean Tasha Baron Cohen but also yeah, you no. know I know there was a write-in campaign for Rudy to get some love <laughs> uh, but that didn't happen either do you think Donald Trump did that just to pimp him because it seems like those two don't talk to each other anymore. I believe that when, when remember there was Home Alone lost in New York and there was the scene where the kid asks uh, Donald Trump for directions, right? I think it's right. in, in the lobby of a Trump hotel. I wouldn't be surprised if Trump had taken out an ad, a for your consideration ad for himself back in the day. But you make a great point. It's incredible because, listen, there are only five uh, nominees in the acting categories and only somewhere between five to eight to ten in best picture but especially mm -hmm. in the acting categories there are so many performances that are so we don't use this word a lot but so iconic because they really are and when i go through the list sometimes row and there's some great cheat sheets out there and great articles written about it i sometimes want to triple check to make sure that these performances really weren't nominated because it seems like how could it be that Ingrid Bergman was not nominated for Casablanca, for example. Right. Or Humphrey Bogart for the Maltese Falcon. That's one of my all-time uh, favorites when I talk about I can't believe it wasn't nominated. Uh, Humphrey Bogart, the Maltese Falcon, 1941, as Sam Spade. It's kind of the ultimate film noir detective movie. And it has a special place for me, Ro, because, and, and no, I, I, was, I didn't go to the theater when it opened. Smartasses <laughs> out there in 1941. But... Yeah. As I was growing up in the south suburbs of Chicago in the 70s, 
it was a staple on the WGN late night movie. That yeah. was a movie that at least once a year you get the Maltese Falcon. And ever since the time I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, I loved watching that film. I'd always watch it with my mom. She was a huge fan of that film as well. And it is just the, it's such a great story. And what an amazing cast. Sydney Greenstreet, Peter Laurie, a lot of the same actors were with Bogey in Casablanca and, and other right. movies as well. And it has such a dark ending to it. Mary Astor is the lead in that. And he's Sam Spade. He's the detective. He's investigating the murder of his his partner, a guy I didn't really care for too much, as he lets <laughs> us know. But Humphrey Bogart, too, was that classic anti-hero. You know, he wasn't a leading man, handsome type of guy. So great as Sam Spade, the Maltese Falcon. And it's a performance that I think informs other performances for generations to come. Sure. Wasn't even nominated. Humphrey Bogart was more than even just an anti-hero in a lot of ways. He was an iconic American figure. Men of that era wanted to pattern themselves after him because he was self-effacing, had this sort of darkened attitude yeah, about yeah, life true. and death and America's role in all of it. You see that a ton in Casablanca, even though that's right at the beginning of America's experience in the conflict. But as he moves on in his career, you get that sort of world wariness I, I think people in new york would make the argument it's sort of like that brooklyn smarts yeah and you make that a great point he played so many characters i mean it was obvious we'd hear the backstory in a, in a movie he's a guy who comes with a past we know he's been through a lot the first time we see him on screen is not the beginning of the adventures of that character's life he's been through all kinds of shit in the years leading up to that <laughs> right. as opposed to sort of like the cary grant type where it's just like I'm fully formed. I'm ready to go in this movie right now. You know, so I just Although, love that film. I will say that Cary Grant got screwed a couple of times by Oscar. Yeah. And I don't mean that. I mean that in a... in a. Those were just rumors. <laughs> totally God, just the Academy Awards way. Uh, but uh, North by Northwest, one of the great yeah, performances, yeah. one of the great movies of all time. And he didn't get nominated. Even Marie Saint didn't get nominated for that film either. Only... Ernie Lehman, who was a screenwriter, and then some other technical people got nominated in what is now considered one of the top five films ever. Well, Cary Grant, all kidding aside, was a tremendous actor, but he did have, you know, he was so good looking. And this has been something that's gone all the way through the history of Hollywood for actors and actresses, where sometimes they don't get respect until they get a little bit older. Although with the women, you'll see a lot of them winning Academy Awards when they're 24, 25, Gwyneth Paltrow right. and Grace Kelly. But I mean, we just saw that last year with Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Not that Brad Pitt has aged into some hideous you know, figure <laughs> on screen as he showed us in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But Paul Newman, a lot of actors, it was later in their career because they were just considered like matinee idols when they first came up. And Brad Pitt this year gets an Oscar nomination as an executive producer of a film. He does. We'll talk about that on Thursday. All right, sounds good. Ahead of I ourselves. got another one for you, and I know this is also one of your favorite films of all time, but this, again, it goes back to the performances that 10, 20, 30, 50, 70 years down the line people still remember and talk about where they might not necessarily talk about the actual actors who were nominated and won, and that would be Robert Shaw in Jaws. Talk about the classic scene-stealing performance, not even nominated. How is that even possible? Henry Fonda is another one of those examples where he had this incredible body of work. Mm -hmm. And then it took on Golden Pond with his yeah. daughter in the 1980s for him actually to bring home the gold. And at that point, he was too ill to even be at the ceremony. Yeah. And juror number eight 
in 12 Angry Men, Henry Fonda played maybe his most iconic role. I mean, there were so many. Grapes of Wrath, you can go back. I'm looking at you right now. I'm not looking it up. I'm almost 99.9% sure he was juror number eight. That's how much I remember it. Because <laughs> remember, in the, in the if people have seen the the old movie or the various remakes, you know, they, they only at the very end do we learn the names of a couple of the characters. I want to go back to another supporting performance. I will have Ron Howard, though, correct that if it's not true in a voiceover that I'll add later. Nice. This is yeah. Arrested Development. Die Hard, 1988. First of all, action movies to this day really don't get the credit. So we could talk about Bruce Willis's performance in the film itself because Die Hard is the kind of the one of the first of the modern action films that's been done a million times in different settings. But it's just you know, Speed is Die Hard on a bus, and Under Siege is Die Hard on a ship. But Alan Rickman, as Hans Gruber, mm-hmm. might be the most beloved villain this side of Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, who won the Academy Award for for Silence of the Lambs. But when you watch Die Hard, the moment Hans Gruber appears is when that film kicks into the next gear. And it's such an incredible performance. And it's a shock for some folks to find out that he not only didn't win, he wasn't nominated. I know. How does Hans Gruber not get nominated? I don't know. We really have become our grandparents because we have our own petty grievances we bring up every year at the holidays. And this holiday is Oscar season, and we bring up the, the same airing of the grievances. Problems. That's what it is. Too bad. If you I, don't like it, go sit somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, the one also that drives me nuts, mm. Steve McQueen. He's one of those actors like Bogart and like Brad Pitt and like George Clooney in the modern era that just transcend the medium. And Papillon is one of the most daring Hmm. risks that a big, high-profile, huge-salaried actor could take Hmm. in Hollywood at the time because there are some horrifying things in that film Mm -hmm. that you just, you'll never get out of your mind when you see them, and he was willing to do it. See, when you said Steve McQueen, my first thought was you were going to mention that he wasn't uh, nominated for The Great Escape which is another great yep. film and another iconic performance. And everybody remembers that character who keeps getting sent to the cooler. Yeah. And, he, and he's got the baseball glove. And I, I know some of the movies we're talking about, they have a special place. And this depends on where you're from, when you grew up, because they are films that played so often on television when we were growing up. So they, they have such a great role in our memories. And now, of course, it's more like, well, these movies are playing on cable or on demand all the time. And I'm going to go back and mention another one that I have mentioned before, <laughs> but I don't care. The airing of grievances. Go ahead. What? Denzel Washington for Philadelphia. Yeah. And now, I've always made the case, Ro, and look, Tom Hanks won the Best Actor Award for Philadelphia, which came out in 1993. And at the time, you know, it was a groundbreaking film, and it addressed AIDS and the treatment of patients. Part of his back-to-back Oscars. Yeah, Forrest Gump the next year. But it was a film that took on a topic that still hadn't become huge in the mainstream. And Jason Robards is great in there, speaking mm-hmm. of an Academy Award winner, uh, as the you know the head of the law firm that, that lets uh, his character go. But I would argue that the you know even more dramatic and compelling story arc in Philadelphia is Denzel Washington's character who's kind of an ambulance chasing lawyer he's doing pretty well he's a family man he's go- he's doing okay but he's not taking high profile cases and he takes this case cuz nobody else will but he is a blatant homophobe at the beginning of this film he says some nasty things he doesn't even know if he should shake his client's hand and you see how he evolves 
and learns and becomes a better man through the course of this experience and by the end of the film is there with the family in the most trying times, including, you know, the last few days. So, you know, he won the best actor for training day. It's a great performance and what I think is kind of an exploitative and not great film, but it is, it's the kind of performance where you go, okay, he might win the Academy Award, but I would go back to Philadelphia and say that Denzel Washington should have been nominated alongside his co-star, Tom Hanks. They would have canceled each other out, though. That happens sometimes. I got another one for you yeah. from a great, beloved movie, actually. <laughs> we'll never end Series with of movies yeah. uh, that had a lot of Academy Awards, but I think the overlooked performance in Godfather, and especially Godfather 2, is Diane Keaton as Kay, with Michael Corleone's wife. Question. Who again goes through this incredible transformation. When we meet her in the first film, she's this innocent ingenue and believes Michael. He's a war hero. And, you know, remember, he leaves her and comes back to her. But she's got a couple of Shakespearean scenes in Godfather 2 where she lays into Michael, then, of course, gets ostracized from the family. But Diane Keaton, who was so great in Annie Hall, wins the Academy Award a few years later for a rare comedic romantic performance. But you go back and look at Godfather. There's your conscience of the movie right there is Kay, who's closest thing to a really good and decent person who can only look the other way so many times before she can't. She represents the constituency of the viewer who falls in love with all the characters. You start rooting for the mobsters in the movie, and then she rips you back away from that and exposes exactly what they're doing back to the viewer. Yeah, like, are you people not paying attention? You know, make sure, let's keep in mind, even as you're finding these characters fascinating, they're murderers. In that iconic scene from Godfather 2, she says the word abortion uh, maybe six or seven times in her speech to Michael. And that's one of the first times the word abortion was used in cinema. Think about that. They used to always kind of work their way around that term. They would never really use it. And I think that's one of the reasons that Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo put that word in. It was punctuation. It was percussion. uh, And it it reminded you of the life and death reality of what you're dealing with when you're watching those movies. It's funny. Mm -hmm. Showtime just ran Godfather 1, 2, and 3, the Mm -hmm. re-edit of Coda, which we talked about on this podcast. And you watch her evolution including her decades later seeing Michael for the first time Mm -hmm. in Godfather 3 and still feeling, even though she's now rather morally superior, she feels totally uncomfortable in his presence. Yeah, great, great performance by Diane Keaton throughout. All right, now I will go from the absolutely sublime to the (laughs) semi-ridiculous, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you over the years, Ro, Uh but another overlooked supporting performance that didn't get any love come Oscar time. Mr. John Vernon as Dean Wormer <laughs> in National Lampoon's oh. Animal House. Now, oh, let me tell you something the late here. great, by the way. John Vernon. Yeah. And let me tell you something. Yeah. You may think I'm being facetious here. Okay. But in a comedy that is still to this day considered one of the greatest of all time and plays endlessly on cable and everywhere else, you need that villain for all of the comedic heroes to play against. And John Vernon played it as if he were in 12 Angry Men. There's not a moment where he winks at the camera or lets us know that he's in on the joke. He's deadly serious. And when he sits them down and says, 
Mr. Blutarski, <laughs> zero point zero. He has some of the okay. most quotable lines in cinema history as a result right? of that. And everybody who's ever gone to grade school, high school, college, graduate school, whatever it is, and if you've seen that movie, you imagine yourself standing there with the rest of those guys and being told by somebody you got a 0.0, 0. Yeah. or you failed the test miserably. That's almost an indelible image in every American student's brain. And then he lets them know, you're out! At the end, and he's going to inform the draft board of their eligibility as the Vietnam War is just kicking off. So you may think I'm kidding about that, but I am telling you, John Vernon, Dean Wormer, Animal House, I want to close with one more for you. All right. And that is Kill Bill Volume 2, Uma Thurman. Now, there was Kill Bill Volume 1 in 2003, Kill Bill Volume 2 in 2004. Like The Godfather, there are a lot of people that say those that, that's just one big movie, but they were released separately. So they are separate motion pictures for nomination purposes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And Uma Thurman in Kill Bill Volume 2 gives an amazing performance. It's a great action performance. It's a comedic performance, a dramatic performance. She's fantastic in it. She should have been nominated. I don't disagree with you. But I am going to tell you now, on the other side of me telling you about Portillo's, which I think is a very important thing to discuss. I'm nominating Portillo's. This should be what you do on Oscar night for the very, very long and never-ending telecast, which we will tell you all about. Portillo's, known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to their poppy seed bun and, of course, their legendary chocolate cake. That's a good thing to have as an Oscar dessert, by the way. They should oh, be serving that at the Golden Dome party. What do they call that afterwards? <laughs> They've got something. Well, the governor's ball. Governor's ball, that's it. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Elton yeah. John, like having the chocolate That cake? was a different party called the oh. Governor's Ball. Oh. The menu is bursting with mouth-watering variety of favorites. Charbroiled burgers, Italian beef sandwiches, cheese fries, chopped salads. A Chicagoland favorite since 1963, Portillo's also has locations throughout the Midwest and in Florida, California, Arizona. Order for curbside pickup or delivery today or ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America by ordering at portillos.com. So if you order Portillo's for dinner, what time should you order it? Because the Oscars are going to go on forever and ever and ever, aren't they? Well, they're still only about a third as long as Super Bowl Sunday, I would say. But it is an extended program this year. Now, Ro, I actually like this idea. The Academy has announced that they're going to have a kickoff Oscar Sunday, uh -oh. which is a new thing. They're starting off... 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 3.30 L.A., where the Oscars are actually taking place. And this is a little thing called Oscars Into the Spotlight. Okay. And what they're going to do here... Are they always in the spotlight? Yes, but this, they've, here's the, you know, this is actually kind of interesting, because when you think about it over the years, all we've ever had from the Oscars since they first televised it, like in 1953, was you'd get a red carpet, half hour or so, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit longer on some of the other channels, but it's just from the red carpet. Right, well, E! would start at like 9 o'clock yeah, in the morning. They'd they go would. to somebody's hairdresser and yeah, watch them absolutely. put curlers in and there. And you know what I always say? People would make fun of that. I go, it's E! Why shouldn't <laughs> they do this right now? It's you true. know, good for them. Yeah. Uh, but you just, you know, when you tuned in, it would be a, maybe a half hour beforehand on ABC and you'd see the, the red carpet ceremony. Then you'd get the Oscars, and then that was it. You'd get your local news, and then maybe, you know, Jimmy Kimmel or before that, other, you know, hosts would do some sort of post show, but nothing official, nothing like they do 
with the Super Bowl, they do with a lot of the other award shows now where you have concerts and parties and everything. So what they're going to do here is have this Into the Spotlight special. Okay. And you've got Ariana DeBose from Hamilton and Lil Rel Howery from Bad Trip and a ton of other stuff. They're going to be the hosts for this. But, Ro, this is where you're going to hear the five nominated original songs in their entirety during this pre-show. That's brilliant. Because who wanted to sit through those songs? Yeah. Unless there was one song you really loved. There's always at least one kind of hit song that's on the radio or yeah. that's, you yeah. know, now on iTunes or wherever you're getting your music. But then there were also these other songs that you didn't really yeah. know nor care about. Even worse was when they would do the score. Well, this is just like the background music. Yeah, very good point. We had heard before that the bulk of the ceremony, all the presentations and nominees and presenters are going to be at the Union Station in downtown L.A. with a remote location in London for mm -hmm. nominees who can't make it across the pond. But these performances are going to take place at the Dolby Family Terrace of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles. Who hasn't had a memory of times <laughs> they've spent at the Dolby Family Terrace? I guess that means you could really hear everybody yelling at each other. But that's actually a really cool locale. So four of the numbers will be performed there, row, and then the Eurovision Song Contest, which, by the way, if people haven't had a chance to see it, it was a kind of a big hit. But that's Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams in the, you know, the song, the the contest parody yeah. movie. So that one's going to be recorded in Iceland. Now, I don't know if Will Ferrell's going to be in Iceland <laughs> or if it's going to be a bad Zoom backdrop, but the fact that we're excited about it, and oh, as you fun. mentioned, this takes away or takes out almost a half hour from the interminable, usual, annual Academy Awards. My guess is that they will continue this tradition even after the pandemic. It's a great way to shorten the broadcast and give a showcase to those songs. May I make an observation? Sure. It's this, a podcast. This will not <laughs> this will not shorten the Oscar presentation. When you move into a new house, you're like, oh, look at all this room I've got. Yeah, that's I'll true. never fill it up. That's and true. with like an hour you fill it up. And that's the way that the Oscar producers have always done things. They try to jam things in. They'll take things out, yeah. but then it's still three and a half hours. And, and honestly, I kind of like the fact that it's long. You can choose to DVR it and roll through the commercials or whatever no, if you want. You know, nobody does that. You want to see live what happens. What if there's a screw-up? What if it's like, Moonlight, you guys won. <laughs> You got to see that stuff when it happens live. Well, we'll see. And then they're going to do a post-show, which is going to be interviews with the stars and stuff. And, you know, I did some post-show stuff uh, for years out there. Some of it aired nationally. Some of it just in Los Angeles. And that was a tough gig because you'd stand outside the big parties for Vanity Fair or the Elton John party yeah. or, you know, back in the day, the Miramax party. And you'd wait for the arrivals. But the truth is, for those after parties, the winners would be the last to show up because they're still hanging at the governor's ball and taking pictures and stuff. So you'd be like, I think that's a composer who lost for best score. That's right. interview him. So we'd be out there for hours. I always wished, and I understood why, they would not allow cameras inside these parties. But, man, I wish they would have allowed cameras. Of course, it would have changed the dynamic of everything. But, boy, I saw some things in some of those after parties that would have been just wonderful to have on television. I was always told that the Elton John AIDS benefit party was mm. the craziest of them all. I had been to that one a couple of times. It was great, but it was huge. And I was lucky enough to go to the Vanity Fair party, which everybody always went to, for five or six years. And that one was a relatively small gathering because it was basically, I was 
I listen, I got invites because I was on a television show with Roger Ebert, not because I'm a wonderful guy, but they didn't allow yeah. press per se inside. So it was all the nominees, all the winners, their families, and that was about it. And and you know, celebrity attendees. So it really did look like one of those old Mad Magazine drawings where everywhere you turned, you're like, is Bono dancing with Renee Zellweger <laughs> while Nicole Kidman is juggling her Oscar on the dance floor? That's fantastic. What time do they get home, do you think, from these things? Like the winners. What time do you... Obviously, the old, the guys who win, like the editors who win year yeah. after year after year, the costume people, they just get their Oscar and they go home. They probably don't even go to the governor's ball because they're like, ah, oh, I've been there, done that. Nobody really gives a crap about me. But especially the young, as you mentioned, yeah. the... the best supporting actors and actresses who are just starting their careers in many cases, you got to imagine that they're partying well into noon or two o'clock the next day. Yeah, there was always, I'd hear talk of parties that I was not invited to that were after parties, after the after parties. I did one year, I know this is getting a little name droppery, but it's a podcast. So yeah. uh, there was one year where I was invited to come along to the post-Vanity Fair party, which was at the home of the Maloof brothers, who oh, yeah. uh, own, I think, the Sacramento Kings yeah, and, uh, and, and, and things lots like of things. Yeah. And it was this giant home. Uh, Britney Spears' dad was the chef because he's some sort of cook or something. He was okay. making omelets and stuff, so it was that late. And that one was kind of interesting because it was a combination of the biggest stars you've ever seen and the ultimate D-listers who had been at that party all day waiting for the celebrities to show up because they weren't invited to the Oscars themselves. So it was sort of happy and sad show business all at once. <laughs> that one did end right around sunrise. You, know, you walk into the bright of the Hollywood morning as people are mowing their lawns and taking out their trash and nobody gives a shit that you won an Oscar. <laughs> Maybe gives a little reality to it. But I like the idea of the pre and post show. So coming up on the Thursday podcast, Download it. Please tell all your friends about it. Please listen intently. We'll tell you who's going to win, who's going to lose. And those who took part in our contest will learn their fates. <laughs> that sounds ominous. It does indeed. Ron Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Our executive producers are Renee Nelson and Tim Melanius, music and production director Brian Alzheimer. See you next time.